Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 1001 Books Podcast. The podcast where we try to read all 1001 books we're supposed to read before we die and decide if they're really worth our time. And so far, we've made it to book number two. Two. So we're off to a great start. Yeah. I'm Nicole, uh, a historical fiction reader who will always make up historical facts based on book knowledge. Um, and I'm Chelsea, and I am an almost 29-year-old who still really loves a good YA fantasy novel. Absolutely. That's true of everyone. <laughs> um, and this week, uh, well, before we get into our book for this week, what have you been reading outside of the list in the um, since we last recorded? Well, a book I just finished and I really, really loved was 180 Seconds by Jessica Park. And she's a YA contemporary author. And it's summertime when we're recording this. And so sometimes in summer, I just really want to read something light and fluffy and easy. And it was just a perfect fit for that, though it did make me cry. Okay, all right. Um, I just finished one called Dreamer's Pool by Juliette Marillier. And this is an author that you first recommended to me the first book in the Her Seven Waters series. Like They're all like high fantasy. And which I liked that book, but it was kind of slow. And so this is another trilogy of hers, the first book. And I read both the first two books in like one weekend because I discovered that I could get the Kindle app on my iPad and buy books and have them immediately, which is not a good thing for me to know financially. It's not good at all. Um, but it was, it was really good. It had the same where kind of harkens back to like a legend that's vaguely familiar, you know, but it was, it was just read a lot faster than her other books that I've read. And I also learned by using the Kindle app that this author is actually a druid in real life. Which a lot of her books have. Are about druids. Yeah. So it totally, she feeds yeah, from her real life. Yeah. And like magic and uh, Celtic culture and stuff. And so I was just like, way to just be real about it. This is probably why your books are so good. Um, and our book this time around that we read is Pavel's Letters by Monica Marin. And um, this book is um, a World War II book, but it was not published until 1999. And it was originally published in German. Mm-hmm. And so we are reading a translation. Right. So um, if you had to describe this book in one word, what would you say? I would say narrative. Why? Um, it felt like a st- someone was telling you a story, like someone who was right next to you. There weren't chapter breaks. There was none of that. It was a lot like, I felt like I was following with someone's stream of consciousness as they were storytelling to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my word I would say is thought provoking because I think this book, we both have read a lot of World War II fiction and this book is nonfiction. It's more mm-hmm. of a memoir of like a granddaughter of people who lived in that time looking back and on, on like her family's story and we read I've read a lot of fiction about that and no nonfiction and so it was really interesting to think about how these being real people and like what was similar and different to the various fiction books yeah. um, that I read uh, I just I really like that part about it and I've read it some nonfiction stories but this one differed a little bit in that it was like told from the granddaughter slash daughter, she talked about both generations, um, point of view. So it was almost a step removed, but not really a step removed because she was also alive then and just very, very young. And so even though I have read some nonfiction World War II books, it was very different from the ones I've read before. Right. 
Um, and so now I say from this point going forward, if you feel that you have to know the read this book yourself before you listen, you should turn this podcast off and come back to it. But please come back. <laughs> <laughs> and we always, when we're doing spoilers here, we are going to talk about the whole plot of the book. So even if you think, oh, I just want to hear some, you're going to hear about the ending too. So probably immediately. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we, just a quick plot. Um, This story was told by Monica Mirren, and she is the granddaughter of the man from the title, Pavel. And sorry, I'm probably going to say his name about 10 different ways. That's just how it's going to be. And so she's telling the story of Pavel after he was moved um, out of his home area in Germany and eventually into a concentration camp. And they're not sure how he died, but somewhere in there he died. Um, and she's kind of reflecting back on that for her grandfather. She's also reflecting back on her mother, Hella's life, um, and how she experienced the war the mother did and how that drew her into, um, communism and the whole, Eastern Germany, Western Germany dispute later on, and so it goes beyond the Second World War. That's another thing that's unique about this is that even when you read fiction books that are set, you know, looking back at the war, it's almost always people in West Germany. Mm-hmm. You almost never hear the story in East Germany, even now, like 20 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, yeah. we still don't hear that story. So I have kind of thought of it as a story, as like her, the grandparents converted from Judaism and Catholicism to be like, Protestant? Pro- yeah, Protestant, like Baptist, I think. And then the war happens, and, the, and he, of course he's still persecuted for being Jewish because he's ethnically Jewish, even if he's not religiously practicing. And then the mom kind of converts from being Baptist to being communist as her religion. And then the daughter, the, as the author, kind of converts from believing in communism to being an atheist and uh, and like eventually, and defects from uh, East Germany and East Berlin before uh, the Berlin Wall falls. And, and then it also kind of talks about how the author's son is the first generation in those, like, four generations of people we heard about who really didn't have an experience that was solely one viewpoint that he went against. He kind of got to... Yeah, he, he had the more, well, more westernized, really, like, yeah, upbringing of, like, of choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of a very brief overview. Uh, Chelsea, did you have anything in the book that, like, really stood out to you that... Um, some, I will look up some of the quotes while we're talking, but I felt like this book was in one sense really great for me and in one sense not my favorite, um, because I found it kind of hard at times to wrap my brain around the way the story was told and that probably has a lot to do with the translation, um, because there weren't chapter breaks, it was kind of just told all in one big swoop, all 140 pages, all in one go. Yeah, and it was, the translation was a little bit clunky and I think it's because in a book it, the book is really stream of consciousness and that's probably hard to translate between two languages yeah and the way because so, like the way someone's mind works and so I would have stretches of the book for about like 10 pages where I'd be just like not fully engaged like still enjoying it but not fully engaged and then all of a sudden this author has a tendency to just throw in these quotes that I'd be like whoa that really struck me mm-hmm. and so Um, Even though I didn't fully enjoy all of the experience of reading the book, I feel like the message the book told was really cool. Yeah. And so I'm going to look up one or two of those quotes, but how did you feel? Yeah, I totally agree that I definitely dog-eared some, like, really thought-provoking quotes. And I kind of liked the stream of consciousness as the 
as just like the style of the um, writing because it seemed like that's how when you're looking back on trauma and you're trying to analyze your family's mm-hmm. story, it's really hard to turn it into a book-like plot, right? It's messy, right? People are messy. Like the true history is really messy and you don't really know what your grandpa was thinking when he did X, Y, and Z, you know? Even if you, you know, he was alive when you were alive, you probably didn't ask him about that when you were a kid. And so I kind of like how it's just, you could see that it was just, that she wrote this book to try to work out how she feels about her family's story. And I think that's really apparent in the style. So really like that. Um, one quote that really stood out to me that I thought was really relevant um, to our times. Um, I'm going to read it now. Um, and it's the mom, it's like mom Hella talking to the daughter of the author, Monica. Um, so this is she is the mom. She appears overwhelmed by the difficulty of explaining to me why Hitler didn't spoil her enjoyment of movies, dancing, of being in love, why the smoldering fear was again and again suppressed by hope that they were young and they just went on living. So this really struck me in the times that we live in right now, um, because, you know, so, spoiler alert, we, we live on the West Coast, and we're not uh, Republicans, and not Trump fans, and I, you know... You should still listen to us anyway, yeah, but you're just going to get a little bit of that from yeah, when you speak. because books are a great equalizer, right? Everyone should read, <laughs> but the, um, it's a great way to communicate about something, but I feel like in the place where we live... Um, so many people have been very worried and afraid and hurt since the election that, um, and then just like the continuous like legislation that almost comes to be passed, like a rising level of anxiety, like a roller coaster about different issues, um, whatever is closest to your heart. And, and I, but then it's just like also, and so it's like that's kind of always going on in the background now. And there's always something you could be upset about or sad or worried, or maybe if you're on the other side, excited about. I don't know. Like <laughs> the, there's, but it's always kind of, it feels very, I feel very, like, unsure about yeah. the state of the world. and But it's true that life just does go on, and you have to find, like, you end up just finding the joy in your normal things that bring you joy, and your friends, and your work, and whatever, because you have to. And my boss recently was saying something about, like, even though things are hard right now, it's not a reason to not celebrate. It means we need to celebrate more, uh, which I feel like I'm taking up as my mantra for the Trump presidency. <laughs> um, but, yeah, what did you have, what did you think about that section? I... I really, so when you were reading that section, it made me think of another quote I really liked, um, which I'll read here because I think it kind of feeds into it. Um, So like most people, I have wondered at various points in my life why I became the person I am. And at different times, I have found different answers. In the process, I may have sacrificed the small scenes and the momentary sketches for the grand pictures and varying styles that I painted myself about my childhood. And I kind of like, that was my big takeaway from this book is like a lot of times in her history, because it was such a narrative and because she was telling us that story as she was kind of unraveling it herself, it seemed like certain things that maybe I wouldn't have picked out as the things that were big and important were things she was telling us because those were the things that had helped form her sense of self and helped form her ability to survive through that hard stuff during that time. And you especially saw that in the way the mom, um, later in the story, the mom is a very fervent, like, communist to the point where, like, she can see that wrong things are happening, but she can't recognize that it's the fault of her own party. And so I thought it was such a good example of how we kind of build the narrative ourselves. And so our experiences are what we're taking from every day, not necessarily every moment of our day. 
Yeah, that another part that I dog-eared is what determines whether we remember the happy moments of our lives or the unhappy ones. Our, our triumphs are more readily more readily than our humiliations or vice versa. It is, our, is it our nature, inherited, circum, or inherited characteristics, circumstance of birth, or our first impression of the world? Is it a slow process through which a peculiarity becomes etched into our character? Um, yeah, it's, that's, yeah, it's totally right on. And I think it's so interesting that part about her mom, and she was like a secretary for a very high up leader in East, um, East Germany, and that she, she's believed in communism even like long before the Second World War, that that was the right thing. And, but then even when confronted with the fact that like Stalin is responsible for more deaths than any person who's ever been alive, like she couldn't compute it, you mm-hmm. know? And so it does make you think like how, when, like that blind faith in a political system is never good, you know? Yeah. Even in our current two-party system, that's probably one of the reasons like it feels like the gap is so big is because we like, like fat on both sides, facts are just yeah. like bush, brushed away, you know, and it's unfair to everyone. But that's, like, kind of how the human mind works. <laughs> and, I mean, even as we already kind of said we're liberal, like, I, I recognize that in myself at times, and I'm like, oh, I'm just blindly agreeing with this news source because I have decided that this is going to be my news source. And so it was really interesting to read about this in a book yeah. and, and just to read about this woman's ability and capacity to kind of build herself up by looking at how her past family had gotten to where they were. Yeah. Um, Another thing that I found interesting, and it was kind of like a dichotomy in Hella's character, that, like, she was so stringently communist and, like, couldn't see the failures, but she was also so stringently a defender of her daughter, so that when her daughter defected from communism, there's a passage, I didn't mark it because I didn't know that we were going to talk about it, but where the mother was just like, oh, it's a problem with communism, not a problem with you. Yeah, so I thought it was, like, an interesting, like, I can't see the flaws in my system, but it's not your fault, sweetie. Well, that is kind of like the, the one thing that can really overcome, like, digging your heels in ideologically is, like, love within a family, mm-hmm. you know? Because like, that, that is still the core of our culture, you know? And, yeah. and then you can, and it's the same thing of, like, a parent who has always really hated gay people, and then they find out their kid's gay, and but and it's, like, it's separate, you yeah. know? Because um, you love that person with everything you have, and that's it. And really, none of the other stuff is actually as important when you view it through that lens. Another thing that I really found interesting in this book, and it wasn't even a very large section, but when they went back to the town where Chelmno, which was the concentration camp that Pavel probably died in, um, how the people of that town had so effectively erased mm-hmm. that moment in their history, and like, how because they knew Monica and Hella were probably approaching them from the viewpoint of a Jewish family, that they like were just automatically shut down and could not converse about it. And like they reached all these like blocked doors, like this priest is out of town and oh, he's back in town, but now he's in a meeting for four hours and he can't talk, you know. And so it was really interesting because I think it speaks a little bit to the capacity of, not the capacity, but like, so there is a line where, like, this town could not could not differentiate between a way to keep themselves thinking that they were, like, decent people and a way to keep this in right. their history. And I thought that that was really, really interesting. And right. it was only, like, a 10-page section. Right. Yeah, yeah, they couldn't, like, it's so innate that we want to think, like, we want to believe, like, well, because it's like, you know, it's like if someone does something to you, 
it's their intentions that count. But if you do something to someone else, it's your actions, mm-hmm. not your intentions. You know, it's kind of that expo- like writ large across the like, yeah. community, which is like, whatever, like it wasn't us, you know, it was other people from the outsider. It was, it was our parents. It's not us that did this. Like, yeah. uh, and cause it's so hard to own. It reminds me a lot. Um, I lived in Cambodia for one year and this is a vast, vast simplification. But one of the interesting things was that, that I learned co- cross-culturally was that in, in America, often if something, a tragedy happens, like a big tragedy, like 9-11, our cultural response is like, we're going to memorialize it. We're going to build monuments. We're going to teach about it in school. We're going to have a moment of silence every year on the anniversary. We're going to think about this as often as possible so it doesn't happen again. But in Cambodian culture, what I observed when there was a tragedy um, while I was there was that it's more that let's not talk about it again because talking about it invites it to happen again. Let's not retell the story. And so it's just like total opposite ways to like remember a tragedy and try to prevent it. And it's interesting too, because I think then sometimes that's where like our culture is sometimes our Western, especially American culture is sometimes used as like tragedy porn Mm -hmm. because we like tragedies are all over the news and they're the only thing that's being talked about. And they're the biggest thing, no matter what else is going on in the world. Um, because that's how our society has decided to deal with that. Yeah, but then we still only do that for like a week. Yeah, and then the news like move, the news cycle moves on. And so I thought that that like that section I found really interesting. Yeah. Do you feel like in your family history is there like a because everyone every family kind of has like stories that are told and retold mm-hmm. that because they define the character of who who you are as a family, you know. Because that's what um, Monica is doing in this book. Do you yeah. feel like you have stories like that in your family? I think my family does. So my um, great-grandfather um, was a captain. Uh, the details are fuzzy. Um, <laughs> uh, in the Army in World War Two, And my grandfather was obviously back home, but he wasn't with his mother because his mother had passed away during childbirth. So he was with his grandmother. And my great-grandfather... Um, the story is he was on Iwo Jima and like the war had been called, like it was over, it was done, but the um, radio line had been cut. And so he went instead of his men, which is against orders, but like is a brave thing to do, went instead of his men and reconnected the radio line and on the way back was killed by a landmine. Oh. Um, and so then my grandfather has the Purple Heart and the Medal of Honor and all that, that he got sent um, because his father passed away. And I think that that's one of those stories that is retold. And I think it's interesting that that's retold because that is such a moment of, like, bravery and honor that that's clearly the thing. Like, I'm sure my great-grandfather was not a perfect man, but, like, that is the one thing I know about. Yeah, these are the characteristics that we want to identify as a part of our family. Yeah, and so this is the story that is told about that man in our family. Yeah. Do you have that in yours? Yeah, the story, when you told that one, the story that came to mind is that on my mom's side of the family, my her dad's grandparents, so my great-great-grandparents, escaped out of Tsarist Russia, or like mm-hmm. Russia right around the time of the revolution, um, because they were Jewish, and Jews were getting like pushed to like push to have to live in a certain region of Russia, and like there was murder, mass murders and stuff um, in like, those communities, and so they were trying to escape, and also, like, people were starving and stuff, right? The country is at war. And so they um, migrate. And I, this is, like, a story that it got told differently to me when I was little because they were trying to hide the gruesome details. <laughs> I didn't get the full details until we were, we were maybe 17. Uh-huh. But that 
Uh, he, my great great grandfather, killed a Russian soldier to get his boots because they were freezing to death, and he got arrested. And then, and and they had tickets to get out of Russia, like in two days, you uh-huh. know, to get to the U.S. And and so my great great grandmother was just like, we I, we have to be able to get on that boat, or we won't get out mm-hmm. in time. And so and so she um, put on a long sleeve dress, and under her dress she strapped metal rods to her arms, and then she went into the jail and flirted with the guard and cozy up to him and then knocked him unconscious with her, the rods attached to I've their arms. I've never heard this story before. <laughs> and they, they, they escaped they, and they got to the U.S. and then they slowly like worked their way across to the West Coast. Uh, and, and they, so like their first language was like Yiddish, you know? And, and it's funny because I think like the, the stories told and retold in the sense that the value is, is that you have to do what you need to do to survive. Mm-hmm. And I even saw that, like, you know, eight years ago, my parents had to declare bankruptcy and they both like hustled to do whatever they need to do to, to provide and to like, you know, as best as they possibly could, even, even in the face of like really difficult odds, you know, and it's like, and similar stories on my dad's side of the family too, it's just like that, that, um, you have to hustle, you have to work for it, you know, and, and like, and there's, and never give up in it's, that process. It's yeah. really interesting because it seems as though. Like the stories that are retold are the stories that our family, like families, wanted to be like part of our family ethos. Like, yeah, so that is lost. the thing. Yeah, which is kind of what she was saying there when she was saying like you kind of prune your memories mm-hmm. for what is going to be most conducive to you being successful or to building a a like a deep sense of self that you can accept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, totally. And so, and I like bringing it back to the book a little bit, like I totally noticed that with how even just like woven in and out, she kind of talked about her son. Like my, her grandparents had um, converted from their religions and her mother converted to a political sect. And then she converted away from that. And like, it was so much like it took those three generations, but now because there's been that much change and that much just fluctuation in their family, her son gets to choose to do whatever he wants. Yeah, there's. I, I marked a passage about talking about the children of like the leading communist party people. Oh, I read. I love this passage. <laughs> and and she's talking about how that those children really rebelled, like the generation rebelled against communism. And was it was it due because they had a privileged childhood or like in or an insider acquaintance of what communism mm-hmm. was really like? Or was it, was it due to moral corruption in their parents and that nobody thought like that it was going to happen? They were going to revolt against an upbringing and, and how, and because their parents were like resistance fighters and then they turned into dictators. Yeah. And like, how did that happen? And then, um, had they, they, but they kind of like the children had learned from their parents, told on to what was right and not portray one's friends. And so it's, she, she's wondering, I don't know why the parents were not more deeply disturbed by their failure to live up to their own standards and their children kind of confronted with them with the fact that they weren't really communists, they were dictators, you know? And I thought that was so cool. Yeah. And I think it speaks a lot to how like oftentimes people's intent aren't mm-hmm. what they end up doing. Yeah. Um, which was so interesting reading this viewpoint because especially living in the United States, it's really easy for us to demonize communism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, pretty much talk to like, Yeah, but like, we're not living in that society. We don't know what the original intent is mm-hmm. and like that kind of thing. So I think that's so interesting to read from someone who wrote about it from inside it and kind of watching it. Like mm-hmm. that the intention when her mom was deciding to do this 
was not to be a member of an organization that was going to murder tons of people. Like yeah. that was not what she was signing up for. Yeah. I think it's, so, I, I thought the history nerd of me is like, how come every society that has been at least by label communist in the end, at least in my, as far as my knowledge of history, in the end is actually just like an authoritarian dictatorship. Like what about communist? Like how does that happen so easily? You know, like it always is like a, what's a one party system. Mm-hmm. And there's one big, big wig in power, you know, who, and who really abuses their power. Probably because if you don't have checks and balances, power is always going to be abused. You know, power corrupts. <laughs> and I think too, it has a lot to do with because then people like when we're focusing. I mean, in a way over generalized sense, like when they're saying like everyone has the same, mm-hmm. like there's not really that drive to strive for that power, yeah. and so the person who gets it is much more likely to be like an egomaniac. Mm, egomaniac, true. not eglo. That's not that's a real not word. A word. <laughs> <laughs> um, because they're predispositioned to want that kind of power. Because then it makes me wonder, like, what a capitalist society is, what's the thing that they always become that they're not trying to be? If anybody listening to this lives in a communist society, we're probably blocked there. I'm sure we're blocked there. And you can't necessarily. I mean, sure, we haven't said anything that bad. <laughs> and you can tell us what you guys think of capitalist societies. That'd yeah. be great. Because I'd be really curious to yeah. know. Because capitalist societies certainly always have a big, really big gap between mm-hmm. the rich and the poor. And, like, a lack of justice for poor people that communism is supposed to overcome, right? Like yeah. that. <laughs> so there they're is, both flawed. There is no perfect government. No, they're both flawed. It's because true. it's ran by humans, and humans are flawed. Yeah. The only the other only other passage in here I was going to mention was there's a part where she talks about how the mom before Hitler um, um, Hitler came into power, they right as he came into power, they were her, her and her friends were reading Don Quixote as an allegory about Hitler because he liked the melancholy night wanted to stop the progress of time and fight against windmills. And I just, I just really love that idea that, um, you know, like you always turn to books to try to understand what's happening yeah. in your world. <laughs> Even like that's not a, a direct connection that I would make really easily Hitler to Don Quixote. But it's not a connection I would make. Yeah. One thing I will say about our book, if I, because I want to kind of say something that I maybe struggled with within our book, um, besides the pacing, was I thought the pe- pictures and the way the pictures were done in this book was creepy. So what would happen in this novel, well, or this story, would there be a photo, and then, like, two pages later, there'd be a zoomed-in version of that photo, and it kind of creeped me out. (laughs) You're right. I didn't really notice that at the time, but I'm looking at a page now that has both of those things in it, and it's like, this is a picture of her, of the grandparents, and then on the page next to it, there's a picture of the zoomed-in of their hands in that photo. Uh, on page 64. And there's one where there's a picture of the grandfather, Pavel, and then the ne- two pages later is like a zoomed in of just his eyes. Yeah, and so <laughs> I feel like maybe it's trying to capture like the character of these real individuals. I think it photos, is too. I can't say that it does not really work. Oh yeah, here's the eyes. Yeah, that's weird. It, does not, <laughs> it doesn't really work, you know? And I, if there's going to be pictures in a book like this, I just prefer they're all in one section in the middle that you can look at kind of when you get there or in advance rather than being sprinkled amongst the text, you know? Because they also, you know, they'd be talking about, we took this family photo and then that photo wouldn't appear for a few pages. Yeah. That wasn't perfectly lined up. So that's more of a, uh, like, an editor's decision. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just like, I couldn't get over it. Sometimes I'd turn the page and I'd be like, why are we zoomed in on his eyes now? Yeah. Um, I wonder, this woman has also written, like fiction novels, I wonder if any of those have been translated into English because well, I know it sounds like her. Um, she published a novel from 
when she still lived in East Germany, mm -hmm. that was anti-communism. It was banned. And it was banned, and it only got published in West Germany. And that novel is called, I think, Flight of Ashes was the one that that, was that happened to. Um, and so I was wondering if that one was, in translating, because it would be interesting to read. Yeah, it would be interesting. Um, but, you know, the other thing that made this book interesting to me is that we've been talking about going to a giant trip to Germany in a couple of years, and, and just, like, the split between East Germany and West Germany and East Berlin and West Berlin, it's not that long ago. It feels like forever because we were basically born and then the Berlin Wall fell. Like the next but it's year. in our life. But it, yeah, and it and it's just like all those people are still alive. <laughs> all the people that are alive, then, most of them are still alive. The people that yeah. were young and really fought to tear down the Berlin Wall, they're alive now and they're like middle-aged. And are they, they still, you know, rebels? Or like, I don't, I don't yeah. know anything about modern Germany and this book makes me want to know. I imagine that. it's <laughs> much like our generation of, like, people who practice the Vietnam War where, like, they're, like, middle-aged now and, like, have just settled in a normal, like... Yeah, you're a really big hippie when in the 60s, but then in the 80s, you just, like, had a family in the And I bet that's what happened with a lot of these people is they, like, they solved the problem they, that they were, like, fighting for and then they just settled into normal life. Yeah. Is what I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, that always makes, has always made me feel really sad when you, like, when you're young and you feel like you have a cause and you, and then, but then it's, like, inevitable that you just, like get really settled I really don't want that <laughs> it's interesting because I find that comforting I mean I like I, mean, I want to have a family and I want to like have a place to live and I want to like have my kids grow up in one house yeah. and stuff I want that but I don't want to just go to work and come home and watch tv every night oh, from yeah, the ages no. of like 40 to 70 I just can't I don't want to do that I don't either <laughs> and I guess I just realized one thing we didn't touch on the reason this book is called Pavel's Letters is because it sounds like the conversation with the author's mom started because they found a box of the oh. grandfather's letters from when he was exiled from Berlin. Yeah, and he yeah, he was shipped back to Poland, and then he was writing. And then the mom had completely forgotten she ever had those letters. Yeah. Which is, like, a really interesting memory trick also, mm -hmm. like, what you block out and <laughs> in order to live your life. Right, because you just have to get through your life. Yeah, yeah. so um, I, I just thought we should touch on that before we moved on at all, because I realized we had it. Yeah. Okay, so now we get to answer the question, do we think that this book should be on the 1001 books lit before you die list? I would say yes. Why? Um, I just thought it was a viewpoint of a really well-told story. Like, there's so much about World War II, fiction, nonfiction, and it's one that I never would have found a way to read unless it was on this list. Right. And so I really appreciate that. So... While it's not my favorite book I've ever read, I do think it belongs on the list. Yeah. I think it belongs on the list, too, because it is, I feel like it's unique. It tells a story you don't hear all the time. I like that the list is going to be a mix of fiction and nonfiction, mm -hmm. though I think it's mostly fiction. And yeah, and I think it's not a book that is really accessible to, at least to an American audience, um, and to, like, unless you found it through this, like you were saying. And so, yeah, I just, I just found it, like, even now, like, I read it a little while ago, and we're just talking, like, man, like, I really am still thinking about it, even after having finished it a few weeks ago, which is the mark of a good book. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, um, I read it much more slowly than Nicole did, and so I just finished it, like, the last 20 pages in the last couple days, and each time I thought I didn't like the book, I'd find myself thinking about the quotes from the book, and I'd be like, no, actually, this book is really making me, like, think about things that I wouldn't normally think about, like, about how our lives are shaped. And so I really, I appreciate that. And I think that even though this wasn't the most enjoyable experience, because the translation was really rough for me to read, it was hard for me, um, 
I like I'm still gonna think about this book over the course of the next like year yeah and probably sure. beyond like I think that this book will stick with me for a yeah. while it's a book that I could see myself rereading if I was going through like some sort of identity crisis <laughs> yeah yeah Okay, so then we thought, we mentioned in our first episode that we both really love hist World War II historical fiction, and since it kind of fits the theme of this book, we thought we'd tell you about some of our favorites. For me, I'll start with the first World War II-related book I ever read was Number of the Stars by Lois Lowry in fourth grade, and I, I still remember the plot pretty vividly, and I feel like that's a very common one that you had to read in school, in elementary school, but that, that kicked it off for me. After that, I was just, like, tearing through them. Um, um, at, you know, very le varying levels of comprehension over yeah. time. Yeah. I, my first World War II fiction novel was, again, was late elementary school, which I reread this book recently, and I should not have read it in late elementary school. Like, there are some terrible things that happen in this book. <laughs> but I was an advanced reader, so I was reading from the teen section. Um, and it's Briar Rose by Jane Yolen, and it's told, it's a World War II fiction story, but it's told... Um, from the viewpoint that a grandmother told her daughter all along that she was Briar Rose, which is um, Sleeping Beauty um, in European countries, mm -hmm. is Briar Rose. And, but it really was that she was in a concentration camp and survived one of the gas bans. And it's this whole big story about it. And you've, you know that from the beginning. Um, and it's this whole wow, big story. And it's crazy. so good. How do you survive a gas van? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it didn't happen in real life. It's fiction. Okay. Or it was just, you know, very rarely. <laughs> yeah, and so it was so good. Actually, there was a note in it that, like, two or three bodies over the course of all the years were pulled from the piles of bodies, which wow. is horrifying. But, yeah, how do you get So it did happen that? very, very rarely. <laughs> um, so that book was my first World War II book, and I quickly moved on to Anne Frank. Oh, which, yes. mm -hmm. um, Mr. Floyd, I doubt you ever would listen to this, but I definitely stole your copy of Anne Frank and still have it. <laughs> so, oh, sorry, that was, I think that, was, that was the only book we read that year that I liked, I think, so, yeah. Yep, I definitely have a copy of Anne Frank that I stole yeah. in eighth grade That was on the accident. year that we read, like, Lord of the Flies, which I hated, and it's definitely on this list. We'll have to reread Oh, that. I like Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Animal Farm, which I liked, but I feel like I didn't understand at all. That's also on this list, so I was going to read it eventually. But yeah. Anne Frank was good. Yeah, yeah and and then also we wrote down some books that like our World War II fictions are important to us. And I very clearly have read a ton of them. Um, Nicole and I have differing opinions on this book, but I love The Book Thief with every fiber of my being. Um, and that is a World War II fiction story and it is told, you find out in the first page, this isn't a spoiler, from the viewpoint of death. And it is so cool to me. I'm not saying that I didn't like it. I'm just saying that I picked it up at least twice and I couldn't get into it and then the third time I read it and it was fine but I, it's not a book that I would recommend other people to read even though that was a cool like hook told by death but I didn't find it to be different enough from lots of other World War II books that I, I recommend you read it I'm whispering with my hands up even though you can't tell <laughs> um, my most favorite really recent uh, I think it was on the, like two years ago it came out was All the Light You Cannot See which was on the New York Times bestseller list forever mm -hmm. and that was just I feel like that was really good I think it took like a lot of the factors in lots of books I like and put them all in one book like it just, it just fired on like all cylinders for being like like, have a good, like, love story, a good understanding of the war, like, really believable characters, you know, like, the whole the whole deal. Um, and then I have two other ones that I really liked, or three. I really have a lot. I'm sorry. If you're looking for book recommendations and want to cry for days, I'm always your girl. Um, I also really loved, so Codename Verity is a very popular series right now. 
But Codename Verity was not my favorite of that series. There's a follow-up one called Rose Under Fire, um, which is also, they're both set in World War II. They're set with female pilots, so they're really good female protagonists kind of novels. Um, and so they're both, they're both ones where you can't really talk about it with spoiling it, but they're both really good. I loved Rose Under Fire. And then I also love Night by Eli Weissel. Um, and that's classic. a trilogy, and it's a classic. And it's, it's a trilogy? So short. Yeah. I didn't know it was a trilogy. I only read the first Night, one. Dusk, no, Night, Dawn, Day, or some, Dawn is one of them. Hmm. And it tells his story of going to Israel. Oh. After. Right. Um, it's really interesting. I've only read two of the three, but I love that one as well. And that one is fictionalized, but also based in reality, so it kind of mirrors that line between yeah. fiction and Somewhat nonfiction. Yeah. yeah, and so that was another one that I really loved. All right, should we draw and see what we're gonna read next? Yes, we should. Okay, here we go. And our next book is "For Whom the Bell Tolls," a one that I've actually heard of out of all the books on this list. Ay, ay, ay. So this is what this is Ernest Hemingway, nineteen twenties. Have you read any Hemingway before? I think I have, but I can't remember what book. I feel like we may have read like an excerpt from The Old Man of the Sea in like 8th grade, but or maybe 10th grade, but that I definitely, because what is it, he's like, Farewell to Arms, I haven't read that, I haven't read this one. There's another one that's really famous too, but yeah, this will be interesting. Sun Also Rises. Sun Also Rises. I haven't read that. Um, 1920s authors are not my jam. No, they're usually <laughs> like pretty misogynist. And really dense, like really dense prose. I know that Ernest Hemingway, I think he writes more about World War One and the follow-up from that, though. I'm yeah. fairly certain, at least in some of his novels, so that could be interesting. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he like worked as like an ambulance driver in World War One, and that like inspired a lot of his novels. I think that this one, For Whom the Bell Tolls, is about the Spanish Civil War. Or, and like bullfighting. I think it's about bullfighting. I don't know where I'm getting that from. But I think that, that is what comes fighting in the Spanish Civil War is our predictions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. I'm pretty positive right. about that. I'm pretty positive. Uh, but it'll be interesting. I know this is a pretty long one. Yeah, and it'll it'll be our longest by far because both of our books so far have been fairly short. Yeah, less, less than 200 um, pages. So book number three, we're really going to try and ring it in with one that we're not super excited for. But it is a really famous recognizable title, yes. that we, which is we haven't come across yet. And it's one that we haven't read that is recognizable. True, yes, because we've read many of the recognizable ones. Yeah, which is like 50 out of the 1,000, but still. <laughs> it's going to be a long haul, listeners, a long, long haul. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to enjoy every second of it, Chelsea. Um, and something we were thinking of while we thought of, this is jumping back, but I just wanted to say it. Um, when we do the section where after we talk about the book and does it belong on the list where we've, so far we've just talked about like our reading style and our favorite World War II books. If you ever have any bookish topics that you want us to talk about, please share it with us, which leads into our social media. Yeah, you can, you can, um. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at at 1001bookspod, or you can email us at 1001bookspodcast at gmail.com, and we'd love to hear all of your thoughts, and you can also rate and review us on iTunes, it'd be super helpful. And we currently are recording this, we're pre-recording some episodes before we release them, and we have a follower on Twitter that is not us. Yeah, I, she might be a bot, though. We don't know. We don't care, though. If you're listening one follower, even though we haven't tweeted at all, we appreciate you. <laughs> we were really excited. <laughs> this is, when this 
podcast makes us really famous. We're going to look back at this and just laugh at our innocence. It's going to be great. <laughs> so I think that's it for today. We will be back to talk about For Whom the World Tolls, and we hope you come back and join us as well. Yeah, happy reading. Yay!